is falter to a big, important, climactic episode of the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Steffi Nihirni. Today, we finally get to see the battle we've been leading up to since May 2020, right at the beginning of our journey as the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. We're talking, of course, about the Ka Maitura, known in English as the Second Battle of Maitura. Though the direct translation of Ka Maitura is simply Battle of Moitura, and it is sometimes known as the Great Battle of Moitura. The most complete version of the saga we have today comes from Harleian MS 5280, which is housed in the British Library, Give It Back. <laughs> and we've been mainly working from the Elizabeth Gray's 1982 translation and to a lesser extent, Whitley Stokes' 1891 translation. Of course, they're, um, apparently the British government are in talks with the Greek government about returning the Algon mar- marbles now. So maybe we'll get into queue and eventually get that stuff back <laughs> if, they're, if, they're, if they're returning stuff. There'll be a long old queue. <laughs> bring, bring a sleeping bag. It'll be like queuing for gig tickets before we had the internet. Like <laughs> It's worse than those library books I had. Yeah, I returned library books. If anyone has been looking for a copy of uh, books on St. Patrick (laughs) for the past year. uh, I took those out for our first episode. Oh, you shouldn't be admitting this online. I know. It's it's terrible because I I, I feel really bad because I'm really usually diligent about leaving them back. But then COVID happened and we're just sitting there and they were buried under other books and I forgot all about them. No, you're a real stickler for rules uh-huh. of that nature. Anyway, look, now that you've had your public shaming. <laughs> um, yeah, so we were talking about Whitley Stokes, uh, 1891 translation. Yeah, t- today's story is adapted from section 121 to 138 of the text. And we'll chat about what changes we made, along with more discussion of Baller and Lou and the saga in general afterwards. And we also have a new section, which is called Listener's Questions. But now... Here's Steffi with our adaptation, The Second Battle of Moitura. Blood soaks the soil. The agonised moans of fallen warriors drift like vapours across the battlefield. Emergency personnel from both sides tend to the wounded. Those of the two a day who lie injured are dragged away to be treated by Dean Kecht. The fallen for more are dragged away too, but do not make it back to their camp alive. In the distance, a distressed wailing can be heard. As the wounded of the two a day get closer to Dean Kecht's, field hospital, the wailing gets louder. It is the cry of a woman, but nothing like any cry these warriors have heard before. They have heard the death agony of the fur bullock soldiers on the field at Moitura Kong. They have heard the screams of the Formorian as they are run through with Gobnu's sharp pointed spears. But this this is so much more unsettling. It would give you the crawl cree, 
the wounded are dragged past the workshop where Lukta, the carpenter, is making spears and socketing the sharp tips left there by Gobnin. They pass the tent where Kredna creates rivets for the spears and throws the sockets at them without any need to drill holes. The wailing gets louder as they get closer to Gobnu's tent. Gobnu is not working. He and Crone, mother of Fian Lug, sharpener of spears, kneel over the body of a young man. Another woman, Bridget, holds the man in her arms. It is Bridget who cries. It is she who is the source of this terrible wailing that brings dread to the ears of the wounded. What has happened here? Armid asks, temporarily resting the wounded man she drags on the ground. I killed him, Gobni laments. Bridget's son, Rudan, I, I killed him. Crone looks up at Armid. He had no choice. Rudan stabbed him with his own spear. I shouldn't have sharpened it. Bridget sobs as her wailing desists. It's not your fault, Gobnu, nor yours, Crone. It's his father. Brez sent him. He is the cause of our son's death. Her wailing resumes. A terrible tragedy. Armid responds as she lifts the arms of the wounded man and continues to drag him away to be treated. And because he died at the point of one of Gobnu's spears, there's no healing that will bring him back. When Armid reaches the field hospital, she lays the wounded man down on a deer skin blanket. She joins her father, Dean Keck, and her brothers, Octhril and Meath, as they lower wounded and recently deceased warriors into a well filled with every healing herb known to the two a day. One by one, the fallen are submerged. One by one, the soldiers emerge from the well alive and healthy. Indech Mac de Dainan, King of the Formorians, holding his side with one hand, assisted by a walking stick in the other hand, hobbles, inspecting his legions. He looks upon them with pride. Their obsidian black breastplates absorb light. Helmets completely cover their faces. Each one of these thousands of warriors has a freshly sharpened spear in his right hand, a sharp bladed sword on his belt and a strong elongated shield on his back. Today, in the hollers, is the day when we finally defeat our mortal foe, the Tuaday. Up until now, only the rabble have taken to the battlefield, only the peasant and the ne'er-do-well in search of a fortune. But today, ten warriors step out from the legion and take their places by Indech's side. Today, the best of us, Indech continues, 
an irresistible force that will bring me the heads of the Dagda and Lu, that will bring this island back under Formorian control, that will secure our birthright, takes to battle. A deafening noise fills the air. Warriors cheer and roar, spears and swords are banged against breastplates. Indech points to each of the ten warriors as he calls their names. Alaha Mac Delba, King of the Hebrides. Brez Macalaha, the rightful king of the two a day. Tura, Torth Bullock MacLibish, Gull, Irgul, Lach Schlenem Mach Liglini. Omna, Bauna, Achtrielach Mach Indach, my own son. And Baller Machti of the piercing destructive eye. And I, your king Indach, will fight beside you. And we will be victorious. The crowd roars again. Inda turns away from them to face the battlefield. The legions form up into 11 battalions, each with one of the heroes of the Formor at its head. On Inda's signal, they march to battle. Lou can hear the two a day march off to battle from inside his tent. Outside, his nine foster fathers stand guard. Lou is frustrated that his people will not let him fight because of the memory of what happened to Nuada at the first battle of Moitura, but he remembers the words of his grandfather, Dean Kech. When destiny calls, you will fight. Lou falls into a deep meditation. His consciousness leaves his body. It exits his tent and floats over the battlefield. A giant roar goes out as the two armies charge at each other at the great battle of Moitura. The two a day and the Formorian host violently clash. Spears pierce armor, swords strike shield, arrows whistle through the air, warriors fall, wounded or dead. Some fall because of the streams of blood that flow around their feet, making the ground treacherous and slipping. Balor's mace strikes Nuada's helmet cleanly. The helmet shatters and the former king of the two a day falls to the ground, head shattered resting in a pool of his own blood. Balor turns to see Maha, charging at him with the point of a spear towards his chest. Her fiery red hair blazes as she runs. Her face, contorted in rage, would be enough to scare a mere mortal to death, but not Balor. Just as her spear is about to strike Balor's armour, he deftly steps aside and swings his mace backwards, striking Maha in the chest. She falls to the ground on top of Nuada, 
and her blood joins the pool that they now both rest in. Balor surveys the battle as it rages around him. Today, the Fomora are winning. The tide has turned. Lou's eyes open. The noise of the battle is some distance from here, but he has seen it. He knows. Destiny, he whispers. It was a destiny foretold that he would be the one to defeat his grandfather, Balor. He stands, grabs his cloak, and he throws it over his shoulders. He takes a spear, a sword, and a shield from weapons racks. Lou runs out of his tent, past his bodyguard, before they can react, and he jumps onto his waiting chariot. He pulls on the reins, and his horse begins to trot, then gallop taking Lou and his chariot towards his destiny, towards the battle, to face Balor. Balor swings his mace left and right, up and down, laughing maniacally as he takes the heads of warrior after warrior clean off their shoulders. His joy is interrupted by a loud clang. Someone has struck his leg with a weapon. He swings his mace. His armour clangs as once again the weapon strikes his leg. Balor swings his mace again. You're at a disadvantage there, big man, Lou shouts. You may be many times my size, but today will be the day you die. Attendance! Balor hollers. A Fomorian runs to Balor's side. Yes, my lord. Balor bends down and picks up his ally, placing him on his shoulder. Lift my eyelid, so I may look upon this noisy little creature. Who delays my victory? The warrior on Balor's shoulder removes his belt and loops it through the brass ring attached to the giant's eyelid. This is a job that normally requires four men, but the Fomorian warrior has to do it alone. He heaves, and the eyelid rises slightly. Lou rips off a piece of his cloak as he waits. The Fomorian warrior heaves again, raising Balor's eyelid a little more. Lou picks a large stone up off the ground. The Fomorian on Balor's shoulder pulls on his belt again, and Balor's eye is half exposed. Lou places the stone in a sling made from the cloth he tore from his cloak. The Formorian warrior heaves again. Balor's eye is almost fully exposed. Lou swings the sling around and around and around. It gathers so much speed it is invisible to the naked eye. The Formorian warrior on Balor's shoulder gives one last great heave fully exposing Balor's eye. Lou lets go of the sling. Balor sees the golden-haired youth who stands brazenly in front of him, and when it is too late to react, he sees the stone. The stone connects with Balor's eye with such force 
that it carries through the giant's head and out the back of his skull. The eye falls upon the battlefield among the Formorian ranks, and all those who look on it fall to the ground in agony. Some of them freeze like pillars of salt, others catch fire, others melt. Then, Balor's body comes crashing down, crushing 27 Formorian soldiers. Parts of their bodies and their gushing blood carry far beyond where they fell, striking their king in the Mach de Dainan as he struggles to fend off enemy soldiers. Bring me my poet! Index shouts at no one in particular. Bring me Loch Halfgreen! Indech kneels on the ground amidst a pile of body parts, some of them Balor's. Loch, the poet, appears in front of Indech, panting as if he'd run the entirety of the battlefield. My king, the tide is turning. Enough! Indech spits. I need to know who is responsible for this calamity. Loch bows to his king and takes his leave just as another appears before Indech. I challenge you, Indech. I challenge you to single combat, the newcomer announced. Indech groans and gripping his side, he replies, so the mighty Akma, mighty with words, mighty with swords. Have you come to claim my throne? Akma stands, both hands gripped on the shaft of his sword, grave of face. No, Indech, I have come to end your tyranny. Indech stands with a moan. Unless, Akma continues, you wish to surrender. Never, Indek rasps. No champion, Akma teases. No champion, Indek replies. To the death. Indek lifts his mace from the blood-soaked turf and swings it at Akma. Akma slides out of the way of Indech's weapon. He swings his sword at Indech. Indech takes his shield from his back just in time to deflect Akma's blow. Indech swings his mace again, this time connecting with Akma's breastplate. Akma stumbles before steadying himself to deflect a follow-up blow from Indech. Akma swings his sword and once again Indech's shield takes the brunt of the blow, but he is weak. Indech swings his mace again. It makes contact with Akma's breastplate, knocking him to the ground. Struggling, Indech lifts the mace over his head to bring down the killer blow, but just as the mace descends upon Akma, the two-a-day warrior lifts the point of his sword. The mace breaks Akma's breastplate. As he breathes his last breath, he sees his sword piercing Indek's armour. Just as everything is about to go black, Akma sees a trickle of blood on the Fomorian king's lips 
then a shadow. Indak knows his time is up. His champion Balor is dead. His mouth is filling up with blood. The shadow that covers him and the body of Akma feels forgiving, caring, even though it is cast by an enemy. The Dagda looks down upon the old leader. You fought well, all the same. Despite the defeat, your forces are routed. Indech squints as he looks up at his adversary. Kill me, he rasps. The Dagda nods and touches Indech with one end of his staff. Indech closes his eyes and breathes no more. The Dagda spins his staff around and touches Akma with the other end. Akma suddenly gasps for breath. Is he? He rasps. The Dagda nods. By the time Loch Half-Green reaches Lou, word of Indek's death and the ensuing rout has caught up with him. He kneels in the direct line of sight of the leader of the two a day. I am Loch Half Green, poet of the Formor. Indech is dead. I wish to sue for peace. Word of a ceasefire is hastily sent out to all those still fighting. Loch is escorted back to the two a day camp to discuss terms while warriors are dispatched to track down Brez and Alaha. Baller's eye there is almost the antithesis of Chekhov's gun, isn't it? We've been hearing about it for months, but he, he never really got to use it in the end. Yeah, I suppose it did do something, though, um, just not what Balor himself was expecting or anyone who wasn't familiar with the story. Yeah, you could say it backfired on him. It effectively ends the battle, kills a load of Formorians, distracts Indech before his one-on-one -on -one scrap with Akma. And of course, uh, the loss of Balor himself is pretty hard to recover from. He's their secret weapon. Speaking of secret weapons, do you know what I was thinking about throughout that whole sequence where the Fomorian soldier is gradually opening Balor's eye? I don't, but I'm going to assume it's something Star Wars related. Ding, 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 ding. Do I get a prize? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's kind of shooting fish in a barrel, that one. Yeah, um, go on. Yeah, but it's it's actually the, the bit in the original Star Wars or episode four, New Hope, as we now know it where the Death Star is preparing to fire on Yavin 4, where the rebel base is. And it has to wait for the, the gas joint, Yavin, to get out of the way. The gas joint. Yeah, he's a gas joint. He's a, is he a gas giant or is he a, a giant that's made of gas? No, it's it's, it's a planet. <laughs> like Jupiter, like. Oh, so it's not, it's not actually like a giant. No, no. 
But sure, why do you look like I don't know why you're looking at me like that as if I'm, you know, mad into like I don't remember. I I don't think I don't know have I actually seen. Oh, you've definitely seen that. Really? Maybe you fell asleep. Was I awake? Yeah. I don't don't know. know. I don't anyway, I like the idea of a gas giant just (laughs) eight foot man making jokes, you know. Every so often, um you get this countdown, you know, the rebel base will be in range in five minutes and it's usually like it's and it's literally just in range by the time Luke Skywalker gets to fire that shot and destroys the Death Star. And it's like, it's it's really similar, like, do you know, when you think about it's it? It's everything. And there's like every, every Star War ever. Yeah. Every, just in the nick of time. Have you any non-Star Wars related thoughts on this? Um. Yeah, well, I suppose there's like similarities to the Dragon Slayer archetype and also David and Goliath from the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. Uh, the slingshot. They're... Are actually other versions of the story where Lou uses his spear, but we went with the slingshot in this version. Yeah, and that that's the the version in the manuscript, and I I think it's a more dramatic version. It gives Lou something to do while the eye is open, and it builds up that kind of tension, you know. Yeah, that's a nice segue into what we changed in the adaptation. I suppose there was more left out than added, and we changed the structure of it. And we said at the top of the show, today's story comes from sections 121 to 138 of the saga, the second battle of Moitura. But the first part of our adaptation comes in the aftermath of the events of sections 121 and 122. And we learn what has happened there as Armed brings soldiers back to the healing well. Basically, um, the Fomor have sent Brez and Bridget's son, Rudon, um, to kill Gavnu. Uh, to stop production of his deadly spears and the smith kills Rudon in self-defense. Bridget's cries are said to be the first mention of keening in Ireland. We've talked about keening before in the show and we went into a bit more detail on that in our latest exclusive Patreon episode, Where Do the Irish Go When They Die? Uh, feel free to sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology Podcast. That is the correct URL, isn't it? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, in terms of this moment of, oh, in terms of changes, uh, the part where the Dagda finishes off in there and restores Akma to life is new. And we put that in because Akma does die at that point in the story, but he's alive and well later on after the battle. And I also figured that the Dagda had unfinished business with Indek after the whole um, porridge incident, <laughs> as we call it. Back in our episode, <laughs> the Dagda's Club in Love and War. And we did add we did add a lot of scene description and bits of dialogue, but other than that, it's mostly stuff left out. You know, the um, the battle between Lou and Balor is pretty much as is from the text. We just added a little bit of dialogue and in the Elizabeth Gray and Whitley Stokes translations there is actually some text missing, so we kind of filled in a gap a little bit there. Oh, I just want to say before we move on. Um, Are you starting a band called The Porridge Incident? <laughs> yeah, I am now. <laughs> Go on. But um, I know some time ago, I, I think somebody on Twitter maybe had asked why we didn't include the part where Dean Kecht kills his children, in which is in the Harleen yeah. manuscript version. And I didn't think we actually said this at the time anyway, but the the reason is because they're alive. 
now in this part and you could you could go on maybe brought them back to life but in that story he actually scatters all the healing herbs and they have the healing herbs in the story so yeah it didn't make any sense it would have been a huge plot hole it's not canon no <laughs> well it is well i don't know what you call canon it's not irish mythology podcast canon you know? <laughs> yeah. who created our own yeah. uh controversial but I can say the text from the Harleen manuscript as translated by Gray tells us, uh, and I'll, I'll read the quote, Lou and Balor of the piercing eye met in the battle. The latter had a destructive eye, which was never opened except on a battlefield. Four men would raise the lid of the eye by a polished ring in its lid. The host, which looked at that eye, even if they were many thousands in number, would offer no resistance to warriors. It had that poisonous power for this reason. Once his father's druids were brewing magic, he came and looked over the window and the fumes of the concoction affected the eye and the venomous power of the brew settled in it. Then he and Lou met. At this point, there is a gap in the text and it continues. Lift up my eyelid, lad, said Balor so I may see the talkative fellow who is conversing with me. The lid was raised from Balor's eye, then Lou cast a slingstone at him, which carried the eye through his head, and it was his own host that looked at it. He fell on top of the Fomorian host, so that twenty-seven of them died under his side, and the crown of his head struck against the breast of Indec Macdaedaunan, so that a gush of blood spouted over his lips. Brutal. Mm. As we mentioned earlier, there are other versions where Lou uses a spear to strike out Balor's eye. It is unknown what the original version was, and because the saga was written down centuries after the Christianisation of Ireland, it is not out of the question that the author inserted the slingshot as a nod to the biblical story where David slays the giant Goliath. In... A gas joint. <laughs> Great crack altogether. Mm. Well, <laughs> I don't know about yeah. that one in particular, but... <laughs> well, if you were a Philistine, he was, not if you were an Israelite Suppose, or yeah. a Canaanite. Yeah. Um, These are really niche jokes. Go on. <laughs> in 1 Samuel 17, the Israelites are at war with the Philistines, whose champion, the giant Goliath, challenges the Israelites to send a champion to fight him in single combat. No one wants to fight the giant even King Saul, until David volunteers. But he declines to take Saul's armour, heading out with only a staff, a sling and five stones. The Israelites are... <laughs> Sorry, who sang that? Desmond Decker. Yeah. You get a prize. Uh, of course, <laughs> David wins. And the meaning of this battle in the Bible is that if God is on your side... In this case, the god of the Abrahamic religions, you don't need armour or fancy weapons. Uh, the use of the sling and the stone by Lou could signify something similar. Only in this scenario, Lou is god and hero rolled into one. Back in our episode, The Tragedy of Balor, we learned that Lou is the giant's grandson and it is prophesied that he will kill his grandfather. This comes from folklore and isn't explicitly mentioned in the full text version of the Second Battle of Moitura, but it could be the case that the slingshot version of Balor's death is the original and that the prophecy meant that Lou didn't need any fancy weaponry to kill him. We 
don't even know if Lou was the original hero of the story, though. And depending on how old it is, it could have predated the arrival of Lou to these shores, or at least his rise to prominence, which we believe occurred between sometime, uh, or occurred around, you know, sometime between the first and third centuries CE. We talked about that in our episodes last year on Lou. Uh, Lou's role in this story could have been crafted to signal this rise. In Welsh mythology, there's also a giant with a poison eye. His name is Isbaffin. I hope I pronounced that right. And he requires uh, forks to keep his eyelids up. Like Balor. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm like that myself some days. <laughs> Jesus. Go on. Sounds, sounds kind of sore as well, but sure, like these lads had hard skin, I suppose. Um, <laughs> as opposed to hard necks. Go on. Um, just like Balor, he also keeps his daughter locked up in a tower. He doesn't die at the hands of Lou's Britonic equivalent, though, um, Clay Claw Guffus. Instead, he is beheaded by his nephew, a hero called Gareivab Questenin, in the story Kulhuk and Alwyn, as revenge for his 23 siblings who were murdered by the giant. I feel like somewhere in Wales now are a collection of people experiencing what I experience <laughs> when I hear people in various places saying things like Drogheda <laughs> and other things like that. Anyway, this might indicate apologies to Wales in general for that. Uh, this might indicate that the hero who killed Balor in earlier versions of the story was not Lou, but it also might not mean anything at all. There are, however, other portrayals of the death of Balor in Irish folklore. This one comes from the school's collection on duchess.ie and it was collected in Anna, County Sligo by a John Lang. And it says, Long ago, a great giant and warrior lived in this part of the country. This great man was called Balor of the Evil Eye. The warrior had an evil eye and anyone on whom he looked with this eye was supposed to melt away from before it. Balor is supposed to have been struck in the eye by a stone slung at him by another giant called Lud uh, in the Battle of Maitura. He is said to have went to a well in the vicinity to wash his eye and that when he bent in over the well, his eye fell into it and a lake sprung up and drowned him. And this lake is called Loch Nasula after Balor's eye. Sul being the Irish word for eye. In Balor on Tory Island, which I relate to you from a book called Hero Tales of Ireland, compiled by Jeremiah Curtin in 1894, a certain Louis Lavada, spelt L-U-I-L-A-V-A-D-A. And actually that spe spelling really reminds me of Manx spelling. Mm. Um, oh, reading Manx gives me a headache. Yeah. But I suppose like there was if there was no literate culture in the language, they'll just use the, the spelling style of yeah. what of what they have like, you know. Mm. And I think that's what happened here as well. These people were like native Irish speakers but couldn't write in Irish. You know, back in the day and that name was passed down and then just spelled that yeah. way. Anyway, a certain Louis Lavada um casts a spear through Balor's eye, but the giant does not die instantly. Instead, Balor tells this Louis to chop off his head and put it on top of his, like a hat, I suppose, and he will gain all the knowledge in the world. 
but Louis doesn't follow the instructions to the letter. The tale continues. Louis took the head off his grandfather and instead of putting it on his own head, he put it on a rock. The next moment, a drop came out of the head, made a thousand pieces of the rock and dug a hole in the earth three times deeper than Loch Foyle, the deepest lake in the world up to that time. And so that in that hole are the waters of Gwydor Loch. They have been there from that day to this. The big question, though, and the one that scholars can't quite agree on, is what does the fight between Lou and Balor represent in a pre-Christian cosmology? We've already talked about the medieval context of the text back in our episode, Brez, Son of Formor, and how the versions that survived are influenced by the Norse threat and the establishment by erstwhile Viking raiders of the Kingdom of the Isles off the west coast of Scotland. But what, if any, quote-unquote, pagan meaning does Balor and Lou's showdown have? The answer could be determined by the seasonal significance of the story. And there are different theories what part of the year it was associated with. Lou's leading role in the story has led to some scholars, such as folklorists Moira McNeil and Dahi O'Hogan, to, or O'Hogan, uh, to speculate that it takes place around Lunasa, the harvest festival at the beginning of August. This theory suggests that Balor and his eye represent the scorching summer sun. Scorcio! <laughs> uh, a danger to the crops that would be harvested around that time and that Lou's victory assures the crops will survive. Perhaps if this is true, there are unknown alternate versions where Balor emerges victorious that explain poor harvests. That, that was a very old cultural reference there that you would have um, pointed out if I had used it. Yeah, Scott I can't remember. Show. What was it from? It was from The Fast the Show. Fast show. Yeah. That's the only thing I remember from The Fast Show. Scott I was show. very yeah. young. I was in primary school. Um, actually, you know what? I said that, that's the thing that like my dad says. That's yeah. actually where that reference comes from. Not really <laughs> from The Fast The Fast yeah. Show was a bit before my time. Maura McNeil believed that the story of St. Patrick confronting Crom Cruach was, which you might remember from our Patrick's Day special last year, she believed it was a Christianized version of Lou versus Balor because Cromdu's Sunday is usually held the last Sunday of July or the first Sunday of August, which is the same time more or less as Lunasa. Now, Cromdu is a later folkloric figure who is associated with Crom Cruach. This story isn't problem free, though. Do you know, sorry, on a side note here, um, the isn't the last Sunday of July or the first Sunday of August kind of isn't that a day where lots of places would have the blessings of the graves? We, I think we should probably explain to people what the blessing of the grave is for now, people outside of Ireland. Yeah. Uh, it's also known as Cemetery, Cemetery Sunday, Sunday, depending on what, what part of the world it, yeah. you're in. So basically what this is, it's a Catholic ceremony where there is one particular time of the year where the, the church attached to a particular graveyard will have an outdoor mass and everyone... You go and you stand at the grave of your dead relative and um, and it's something people go to even if they're not particularly religious. Yeah. Like I'd go to the blessing of the graves, yeah. but it's like, you know, you're not even really listening to to what's going on. I mean, like that will sound very disrespectful to people who are, <laughs> you know, devout Catholic or whatever. But the cultural thing is, I think, you know, people go and they stand and, you know, there's flowers in the grave and yeah. You see people that you haven't seen in donkeys and 
and whatever. Um, the graves would be done up before and everything. Yeah, people put flowers down and all of that. And um, although actually now a couple of years ago, I did, I walked out of the Blessings of the Graves. It was the year when it was, uh, maybe the year before the repeal referendum. Oh, and yeah. There was a mention of, there was some, there was some uh, uh, anti-choice Propaganda. Pros- prosetizing yeah. from yeah. uh from the, the sound system and I said, Ah, oh, here listen, this is for the birds, I'm away and I, yeah. I bailed fairly early like but but it's that actually it's you know, myself and my sister are terrible too because we'd be standing there and you know, like the priest comes around and they they have ho- um like holy water and they they put you know, every grave gets an old splash of holy water, but they had like a bally gown sports <laughs> bottle of water, you know, with yeah. a squeezy yeah. thing. And the priest was like going around kind of like <laughs> And we thought this was the most hilarious thing. And in Middle-Eye, I think there's an unspoken cultural tradition that women wear white trousers to the <laughs> blessings of the graves. And we would often, like, you'd nearly be taking bets, kind of, on, like, how many pairs of white trousers you'll see at the, the graveyard. Yeah. And then the priest will say, and there's a separate for the, uh, for celiacs, <laughs> it's gluten-free communion. <laughs> for, uh, so, yeah. What were we going to talk about? Oh, we were talking about um, how Crow Do was associated yeah. with Crown Crook. Wasn't that where we were at? And I was and going to the theory yeah. of it being the August thing isn't problem free. Yeah. So the most complete surviving text places the meeting of the Dog Down the Morgan on the weekend before Samhain. Though the time that passes between then and the battle is not explicitly stated, it doesn't seem like almost a year in the text. It does seem more in line with the battle itself occurring at Samhain. And this would make sense of the battle as a kind of supernatural occurrence at Ihahauna, that's Halloween, because that is the time when the veil between our world and the other world is at its thinnest and the Fremor could leave their domain and invade the world of the mortals. It's possible that at this time of year there was some kind of astronomical event, a, a prominence of certain constellations maybe or other star formations that looked like a war in the heavens. In Germanic myth, the wild hunt known in Scandinavia as Oscaria occurs during Yuletide. Yule is associated with Christmas, but in pagan times, the festival lasted around two months from, you know, sometime early November-ish, early to mid-November, until after the winter solstice. It's believed that ghostly riders led by Odin could be seen in the sky. Sagittarius time, really, actually, is when Yule Mm. occurs. Uh, The Mm. harvest theory also relies heavily on the nature of Balor's eye. In particular, the belief that it fired a scorching beam that would incinerate anything in his path. But there isn't really, um, there there isn't actually agreement on this. And in the second battle of Maitura, as we were saying earlier, it is described as poisonous and would render anyone who looked upon it harmless to the Fremor. In our adaptation, we give the eye multiple powers and hint that the outcome of looking at it depends really on the observer. Kind of a Schrodinger's eye. <laughs> Personally, I prefer the November hypothesis, but I suppose it could be either. Um, I like the idea that Samhain wasn't just a one-night-only event but the Ihahauna is when the veil thins and the Aishi and the dead and Fomor or whoever invade the mortal realm. And on the winter solstice, the she and the dead and everybody returns to the other world. 
as the days start to get brighter. The saga, is that the saga itself could possibly be a metaphor for the year and the cycle of the seasons, at least in its original form before all the layers of adaptation and historical context are added after the coming of Christianity and Viking raids and all of that. The last time we talked in depth about Balor back in episode 20, we went into some of his appearances in pop culture and we talked about the 1990s computer game Celtic Tales, Balor of the Evil Eye, and the modern video game Assassin's Creed Valhalla in which he makes an appearance. But you were saying, if I recall correctly at the time, he also features in DC Comics as like an antagonist to Wonder Woman and Batman, but you hadn't read at the time. Did, Did you... Did you read it in the end? Or? I have, and I am happy to report that he is portrayed with two eyes. It's called The Brave and the Bold, Batman and Wonder Woman, which is kind of very um, uh, telenovela. Or, yeah, and uh, your preferred number of eyes for Balor, of course. So in, what, yeah, what what did you think of it? Um, it's really good, actually. I like a lot about their approach to the mythology and actually, the writer on the series, even though he's from Derby in England, but his name is Liam Sharp. So, by a name like Liam, I'm guessing there's an Irish connection there. Is he on Twitter? Um, I I think I probably looked from after I read it. Um, but anyway, and uh, the graphic novel version uh, has an introduction written by the Irish artist Jim Fitzpatrick. Really? Uh, For those of you in the audience who don't know, Jim Fitzpatrick does a lot of work inspired by Irish mythology. His his artwork is really beautiful. But the painting that you probably do all know of his without maybe knowing who painted it, uh, you know, that really world famous image of Che Guevara that you see on T-shirts and... You always see it like on a... It's like a red T-shirt and it's a black and white background, uh, black and white portrait background of Che Guevara, my favourite Stalinist. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. Jim Fitzpatrick actually made that. I met his daughter. Did once. you? Yeah. Not Jim Fitzpatrick, Che Guevara's. All oh, right. Sorry, he, Jim Fitzpatrick actually made that painting public domain so that lefty groups could use it. But then, of course, everybody just made a fortune selling portraits or T-shirts of Che Guevara. Yeah. No, I actually, do you know, I did know that. I remember reading that um, years ago. I read a really interesting thing about Jim Fitzpatrick when he was selling his house. He was selling it and he was talking about how, I think he bought it at an auction and he had no money and was like bidding on this gaff at an auction. And then they were like, yeah, okay, you can buy it. And he wrote a check and he had no money and had to go to the (laughs) bank and be like, hey, can I have some cash please to buy this house? And the bank manager was like, yeah, like, yeah, I know we'll get that money back. (laughs) Cool. No problem. Like, wow. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Yeah, you wouldn't be doing that now, you know? No. Imagine heading into an auction. <laughs> Christ, there'd be barred at the door. Go on. Yeah. I thought you were going to say you didn't realise it was real money, but... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, the art in the graphic novel is really cool. And there's even like a in-story art where there's huge paintings on the walls of castles depicting the Second Battle of Moitura and other events in Irish mythology. Do you have this in hard copy? No, no, I only have the digital version. Sorry, I feel like that's a conversation. Mm. Anyway, go on, sorry. But basically, Balor is the villain in the story and he's used sparingly, as he should do a good villain. He's more talked about than involved in the action so that when he does appear, it's kind of a big impact appearance. My only real criticism is that one of the main characters is... Um, Carnunus 
mm. who's attested as a continental Celtic god, but not in Irish mythology. So I, th- I think there's no need for that. But um, <laughs> he's, he's, he's quite po- popular among the English pagans. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry, we're talking about something where the plot is Balor and Batman and Wonder Woman. Yeah. And your problem <laughs> is with a continental god that doesn't appear in Irish mythology. Is that is that just so I'm clear? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, everything else in it is Irish. So, like, apart from Batman and Wonder Woman themselves. Oh, sure. Well, then. So it just feels like, <laughs> why, why do that? Like, Why not? <laughs> like, seriously. Like, Batman. Ah, here, look. Go on. But, but I, I feel like the Dagda should have been used. The Dagda is mentioned. There's a castle called the Dagda's Keep, but he's not actually in it. And I feel like the role that Carnunas plays in that. Well, Liam Sharp, author mm. of this graphic novel, if you're listening to this podcast or if anyone who knows Liam, uh, can you let us know? <laughs> can you can you give us a bit of explanation as to your choice for Carnunas and not the Dagda? But otherwise, if you are listening, Liam, thumbs up on <laughs> the, the story in general. And hopefully you'll do a sequel because I feel like there's room for a sequel on that one. Um, but anyway. And just so you know, I don't have any problem with yeah. the artistic yeah. direction that you, you've you gone here. So, you know, it's grand. I just like to see the detective involved in things. You right. know. Anyway. I always have two parallel reviews of any pop cultural representation of Irish mythology. One is, is the story any good? And in this case, it's great. And the other one is how well does it represent Irish mythology? And I'd actually give it like a B plus or an A minus. The jig around the roles of some of the characters, but the internal history of the gods and the Fomor is relatively close to what we have in the myth- in the mythology. And there's also a bit of Hiberno-English in it too, which sometimes lands and sometimes doesn't. But there's a really funny story or funny, funny bit in it where Finn McCool calls the Fomorians Langers, <laughs> <laughs> which probably settles the debate as to where he's really from. Well, they'll claim him now anyway. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, well, of course. You it's, know. it's a very Cork um, slang term. It is. And only call somebody that if they're either, you're either having a laugh with them and they're from Cork or it's an insult. Yeah. I don't, I would never use the term to to people from. I would feel like I was there was some kind of cultural appropriation going on if I used it. To be yeah, it has to be somebody you're <laughs> very good friends with, I think, and then it becomes a bit of a like a jesty kind of. Is it? Jab. Oh, I don't know. Tread carefully is what I'd say. People from Cork, like, or I inbox, love Cork. Our but. inbox is going to be filled with Corkonians telling us the correct way to use. Yeah, grand. Like <laughs> by all means, get in touch. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get a an episode out of the mythology connected to the term langer. Uh, but what? Okay, tell me. I I want to know what what is this actually about? This graphic novel, comic, um, comic slash graphic novel. I don't know what the difference is. Go on. Well, without too much in the way of spoilers, just in case people want to go and read it themselves. There's been a murder in Tiernan Oak. Dun, dun, dun. Um, the gods and the Fomorians have been locked away there for millennia and the gods did that to stop the Fomor raiding the mortal realm. Only Carninus can communicate with the outside world and that's why I, I think that they should have used the Dagda there because he's like a psychopomp um, magician kind of person but looker. He gets in contact with Wonder Woman to come and help solve it. Now, you know, I think... If you know the whole mythology of deeper mythology of Wonder Woman, 
Yeah. It, it makes more sense because Wonder Woman is an Amazonian and a, a, a servant of um, Athena. I think is it Athena. Somebody's going to go mad out there. I can't remember. One of the Greek goddesses. Like, right. You know, so that's yeah. why Kernanus goes to Wonder Woman. Okay. Because she's kind of got the ability to go there. And she decides to bring Batman because Batman's a really good detective. But also there's been some weird stuff happening in the Irish neighbourhood of Gotham City, which turns out to be related. Is Gotham meant to be an Irish community? No, there's they have an Irish kind of district, you know, a bit like Southie. It's like South Boston, you know. Right. Okay, the, I didn't know Like, that. you know, the way a lot of the nor- northern kind of northeastern American cities have an Irish kind of... Yeah, but sure, I didn't know where Gotham was meant to be located. Oh yeah, well, I don't know. It's like somewhere... I mean, I've never, I've never really thought about it. Like it does, it sounds wild. I was on board with the inclusion of Carninus uh, in this, but I kind of wonder a bit about like colonialism and imperialism and this sort of a reading where maybe I'm kind of, maybe I'm, I'm getting too into it, but like I, I do wonder about the inclusion of, you know, a plot line where it's like, oh, these people have to come in from outside to sort this out. Yeah. But that, that being <clears throat> said, you know, that's just like, that thought entered my mind while you were talking about it. So perhaps if I actually read it myself, I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. necessarily think that. But I'm not going to labour the point too much or dwell on it because now we have a new section. We should have a jingle. It's listeners' questions. You can send in questions to us on Irish Mythology Podcast in a variety of ways. You can send them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, and also on Patreon and our patrons' Discord server, Patrons questions will always be answered first. So if you're sending your question in via a social media outlet and you are a patron, please make sure to tell us your Patreon username. If you would like to hear yourself asking the question on the show, there is a voice message facility on our Anchor FM site where you can do that. And there's a link to that in the episode description on your podcast apps. We will tell you all the ways to contact us properly at the end of the show. Our first question comes from Dunnet, I think, on our Discord server. Here's my question. What sources outside the folklore itself do you use to provide background and fill in the details when you dramatise the stories? Brackets, aside from Star Wars. (laughs) Roasted. Roasted. (laughs) Low-key roast. Yeah. People are on my side, Mark. (laughs) To answer that question, the vast majority of background to the stories we retell, if it doesn't come directly from the story itself, it comes from other sources in Irish mythology and folklore. For example, in the episode on Brez and the Formorians, the two half-human, half-goat guards at the entrance to Alaha's She were influenced by later folk descriptions of Formorians. The physical location of the stories um, a lot of the time informs the plot so far as, as as when there is very little description in the original of the event, we can flesh out that aspect just by knowing what the landscape there is like. And along with that, other mythologies that have similar stories can help us flesh out our own if needs be. And an example of this that I would use would be in one of our pa- uh, patron bonus episodes um, called How the Dagda Got His Magic Staff. We added a bit of drama where the Dagda reveals his identity to three men he meets on the road. And this was influenced by Odin's revelation of his identity in uh, Grimnasal. In terms of plot, um, we don't really go outside of the originals too much. 
but where we do it's more like restoring a painting i think you know or doing a jigsaw maybe if if you're looking at a picture and there are parts missing and you know something about the artist or the context of the painting, you can make an educated guess on what will fill the gap. And this is what I imagine paint, uh, paintings <laughs> like. I actually, <laughs> I've, I've never done it. So there's probably somebody out there going, my God, that man knows nothing about restoring paintings. Which Just is true. Speaking of restoring paintings, do you remember last year I went to see, I went to Milan last year and I went and I, I looked at the Last Supper. Oh, yeah. And I was really surprised. I actually, you know, I for all my interest in art, you know, I'd, I'd actually hadn't read much about that particular painting and how it was restored over these, but it's been restored so many times. It's a bit of sort of like, it's kind of a, a trigger's broom yeah. situation. <laughs> like, where is the original? But anyway, sorry, go on. I've uh, once again gotten distracted. <laughs> So what I was saying is you can make an educated guess and fill in the gap. And then other than that, it's really kind of the characters. If you know the characters, the gods, the, the phone war and how they normally act, that kind of will drive things as well. You know, um, most of the outside influence is in scene description or some some of the dialogue, geography, history, archaeology, all informs most of our scene description. But there's also stuff like. You know, the green fog when St. Patrick takes on Crom Cruick in that previously mentioned episode last year. And this was actually a nod to Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And there, there's like a, a part in it where there's like a mm. green fog denotes evil, something, something foul. Mm-hmm. And also Angus whistling in the long grass in the wing of Attain in the Assassin's Creed games, the later ones, at least you hide and whistle and it draws the guards over to you and you can stealthily assassinate them the depiction of the two guards at tara in the rise of lou though the dialogue is actually almost exactly the same as in the original uh, these were influenced by the typical comic relief characters you get in shakespeare and also vladimir and estragon from samuel beckett's waiting for Godot. Mm. there's loads <coughs> of little things like that um and i might give a longer answer on patreon but um yeah, yeah. and I suppose current events are also have an influence in the same way that they influence medieval retellings of much older stories that we rely on from our, for our source material. So when we're talking about the two a day and the people of Ireland paying tribute to the Formore, it's hard not to think of things like, you know, the selling of Ireland's natural gas to Shell for a fraction of its value and so on, especially now at the cost of, of living crisis, you know. Yeah. And I suppose like any writing personal experience comes into it. So Balor's sleep paralysis in the tragedy of Balor came from my own experiences of that phenomenon, ghost depression. Yeah, and I think my experience, there was an episode we did, it was the episode where we talked about Sharon Van Etten. Oh yeah. that song. Um, that was the Dagda, how the Dagda got his magic staff. Yeah, like personal experiences of grief, I suppose, yeah. and bereavement and loss and, and that would have informed that episode certainly from my perspective yeah. anyway um but the next question comes from bridget flynn on patreon and bridget asks i have a question that is perhaps more historical than in-world mythological and i realize that the answer may be unknown but um i cannot quite grasp the relationship that the indigenous irish people had to the two Danon. would an individual farmer pray to the doctor for a good harvest or was talking to the gods only something a priest or a druid would do or was the idea of praying to individual gods and their concern for the lives uh, mortal humans had even a thing? Thanks so much. 
Uh, love the podcast and keep up the good work. Thanks, Bridget. Love um, thanks, yeah. nice, thanks. nice compliments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Insofar as we don't have any written records of the time um, and related to that, no holy writ or books of prayer or anything like that. Uh, you're per- completely right. The answer is unknown. But based on our knowledge of how um, spiritual belief developed after the coming of Christianity and how some of the old ways were maintained in spite of the priesthood by the common people, we can be relatively confident that they did in some way make direct appeals to the gods. Right up to modern times, people have left offerings to the good people in their houses or on windowsills and have celebrated seasonal festivals and made pilgrimages to holy wells. And this is likely the way they appealed to the gods. On St. Martin's Day on November 11th. November 11th is also, I think, the anniversary of the Haymarket riots. Um, On St. Martin's Day on November 11th, for example, there was until very recently a custom where some people would slaughter a chicken and sprinkle the blood in the corners of their house. And a lot of us would still leave out food for the spirits of the ancestors on Halloween night. And they have also related to the gods through the stories that we now call Irish mythology. We certainly leave out offerings for uh, the good people on Halloween and solstice. And yeah, there was one night here I was real creeped out actually on my own and I left out a little, little drop of whiskey and, yeah. a, and, a, and a little and a fairy cake. I was like, yeah. I can't even remember. I think maybe I'd like fall asleep on the sofa, sofa and had like a bad dream or something. <laughs> it's like, oh, I feel weird. Anyway, Better safe than sorry. Yeah, well, you know. They would have sat around the fire. The people in pre-Christian times would have sat around the fire and told the stories that were appropriate to the time of year. And there was probably less distinction between your spiritual life and your everyday life. The gods are all around us and there are portals to the other world all over the landscape. So you'd pass these portals and fairy forts on your way from A to B. And if modern cultures where animistic beliefs persist or anything to go by, you, you would have to honour whatever gods or land spirits lived in them as you made your journey and possibly guided by the Dinshankas, you know. You probably only went to the Dreer Druid when you wanted something big or for a big ceremony like, you know, a wedding or a, whatever the baby name, and you know. Dree is the Irish for Druid, but it also means magician or sorcerer. They probably would have led ceremonies at the big seasonal festivals too. And I think they would have had prayers of a sort there, there probably would have been kind of oath-based prayers like and dagda if my herd is healthy and plentiful in number i'll sacrifice one to you you know you can have one and they would have had to like prayers for and to the dead and that's something we haven't really lost um just no and actually talking about the the blessings of the graves like i mean that is about remembrance for people that have died before us, you know, that thing where you go and stand and, you know, you honour the dead. And actually that's, I suppose, that's the part, like when I go to the blessings of the graves, and actually a lot of people go to the blessings of the graves because they don't want to seen, they don't want to be uh, not seen there, you know, (laughs) by relatives. But like I go because I think, you you know, I do have, yeah, I but I do have my own kind of personal beliefs around honouring the dead and so on and so forth. So. And just briefly, sorry, there's another question that was a bit, later in but it's kind of related to the previous one so i might just run through it very quickly and it's uh, because it's adrian o'connor on hi adrian patreon my question probably relates to bridget flynn's above as someone with little experience in anthropomorphizing 
gods. I struggle to understand why gods would need or want contact with mortals. And also with the, idea, with the idea that I, I would have the knowledge or wisdom to ask anything of them for myself personally. Admittedly, this comes from being influenced by Eastern traditions where you accept the situations life provides as being the material to work, uh, being the material to work with directly and try not to put your own hands in or control on it as much as possible, much less ask a god to intervene on your behalf. On the surface, that might sound wholly incompatible with honouring the Irish gods and establishing a relationship with them, but I've got a feeling that isn't really the case and I'll give a longer answer on Patreon. I will do a separate recording. Like, you know, for for me, your your spiritual beliefs is something are something whatever you're comfortable doing. Yeah. Like I'm not into being part of a religion, so to speak. Um Nor I, are we the arbiters. And nor are we the arbiters of what you know, should spiritual and wisdom, yeah. Yeah. Or what spiritual wisdom can be yeah. is contained or can be extracted from the the you know the old manuscripts these 7th yeah. century 5th century manuscripts that we read through yeah. for, for the purpose of building stories but I, I think um, well we anthropomorphize them because we do that with everything we do that with ourselves like do you know um, like we live in what a lot of people would call a consensus reality so we've decided at some stage that this is what everything is and we're going to stick with that mm. so it makes it easier to understand the gods if we put them in human form and then they will appear to us if you're a person that believes that they appear to us and um, they will appear to us in human form because they know that's what we recognize mm-hmm. and why they would want anything to do with us i think it's just their nature they are part of the fabric of the universe they're interested in consciousness and anybody is remotely like them somebody is thinking and thinks of them so they you know this is my personal thing and I would say absolutely compatible with Eastern stuff because, you know, you could you could just read stories and the way you'd read a Zen Cohen or, you know, something um, from not Lao Tzu, the other lad whose name I forget, the other famous Taoist lad. <laughs> I, I, I looked this up before I do the Patreon answer. But, um, you know, you can read them as stories and you can use them to kind of, you know, make you think about spiritual things. Or you can use them as kind of inspiration or use them in meditation or whatever. This is what I would do. But like, you know, your your thing is your thing. That's my opinion. Chuangzu? Yes, exactly. I think it's the other person perhaps yeah. you might have been thinking of. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, look, I, I would just hazard a guess. If, if I was to try and consider why I think the gods might want anything to do with the humans is because from the perspective, like, in within these stories we are not the humans are not so far removed from the gods in practical terms like there is the other world but the in these stories you know mm. the mythology is that the veil lifts yeah and they pass and they move between worlds and i don't i don't know if you could have that without necessarily having some interest and obviously if people are making sacrifices yeah then the gods are considered to be receptive yeah. to that and sort of pleased and you know, that's. Yeah. Um, also, I think, you know, when we think of the gods, there's, there's like a tendency to think of them like the way we've been brought up to see God, the, the all powerful, the mm. creator of everything. The, but the gods are. I mean, these gods are kind of different in that they're they're also, yeah. you know, they're incredibly powerful and, you know, like fire shooting from eyeballs and, yeah. you know, mad things happening. 
But, you know, they're also very flawed. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're they're flawed characters. Yeah. You know, some of them are, frankly, dickheads. Yeah. <laughs> like, so... But I mean, you know, you could say that about... Um, yeah, you could Yahweh say... Yahweh as well, yeah. Jehovah. Yeah, um, but I, I think that, like, it's not... It's, it's not considered such a bad thing, yeah. necessarily, to, like, recognise that, like, some of these gods behave in ways that aren't cool yeah. in a way that like people it, you know if you say it depends on how you phrase it but if you say like for monotheistic religions to to say well actually you know that's not that wasn't cool yeah. uh that might be a bit of a character flaw that might be a bit of a personality flaw like that might not be that that's considered offensive you know yeah. in a way. so the, the other thing is they don't punish you if you don't believe in them but you have to believe in them to for them to help you but you're not going to go to burn in the fires of hell or anything like that yeah. The funny thing about Yahweh or Jehovah um, is that like he was part of a pantheon of uh, a polytheistic religion and basically staged a coup yeah. over the other gods. That is true. And I'm going to ask you to pause that thought and hold it for the lengthier Patreon answer for uh, our subscribers or for our Patreon subscribers. And also because this episode is long enough already. And that is all we have time for today. So... If you can't get enough of the Irish Mythology podcast, you might consider becoming a patron. The show will always be free to listen to, but it is not free to make. You can support our work from as little as three euro a month and you'll get story scripts and story only audio as well as early access to the next episode. And from five euro a month, you can access extra bonus content. Our current bonus episode, Where Do the Irish Go When They Die, is up there now, where we look at the intersection of funerary customs and myth in Ireland over the last 10,000 years or so. But if you don't have the cash to spare right now, you could support us by sharing our episode with friends and family on social media, or you could check out our wish list on Amazon and buy us a book if that's, you know, something that you might be open to. Also, you know, People are strapped for cash these days, cost of living crisis. You could also just send an episode to one of your friends as their Christmas present. And maybe you might consider buying your da uh, a Patreon subscription <laughs> to our to our podcast. We would really love it. Yeah, that'd be great, actually. And speaking of social media, you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology um, and on the World Wide Web at irishmythologypodcast.ie. I haven't done that one in a while. And <laughs> now on Mastodon at Irish Mythology. And it's on the .ie server. So I think that's important if you're coming to it from another, another server. I haven't figured out the whole thing, but quite like Mastodon. Um, we also have a link tree with all of our links. And that's... People know where Linktree is. It's slash Irish, Irish Mythology, Mythology podcast. podcast. Yeah. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Amazon or another one of those platforms that lets you do ratings and or reviews and you like the show, do us a favour, go and give us a five star rating. Helps us reach a wider audience and do share the episodes. You'll be rewarded by the gods. Can't guarantee that, but that's what I'm, I'm saying. I'll ask them. Do Thanks know, for listening. Uh, and big shout out to the person who left us a five star review and words in the review written in ohm <laughs> like that is that uh, that person went the extra mile so yeah. thank you very much fair play. fair play to that um have and we're coming up you know i'm very conscious of the time of year it is so uh have a lovely christmas nolag hana august Dave. 
Um, have a gorgeous Yule, a happy winter solstice, and we will see you next time on the Irish Mythology Podcast. Slán. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented, and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.